the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up more on the floods to clean up the isolation and the sorry state of the roads. And if you might have seen that story on the ABC News site about uh, the Game Council calling for Australians to eat what they call wild boar in an effort to control the numbers of feral pigs, but some people don't think it's a great idea. My background is let's get rid of them. Let's wipe them out. Let's um, let's save the agricultural the agricultural resources that they're having so much impact on and the environmental resources and also the disease spread. Let's get rid of these animals. But but by but by harvesting them, we're certainly not going to do that. Your ideas about uh, eating feral pigs or wild boar, as they say, zero four six seven nine double two six eight four is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, let's turn our attention to floods and a uh, range of issues there. Fuel, isolation, the roads and um, floating 44-gallon drums full of diesel across a flooded creek and choppering in a grain bagging machine and also being unable to irrigate a thirsty rice crop that has flood water lapping against it. All of these things are confronting Moulamine farmer Jeremy Morton in the New South Wales Riverina, whose farm is cut off by flood water higher than it's been in more than 100 years. He says his current means of getting fuel to the farm is in 20 litre drums, but it just isn't feasible once harvest starts next week and he'll be going through some 1,000 litres a day. Yeah, so basically we're just, it's pretty much an island where where we are, so um, you just you can't get in. You can't get in by road. So we're we're actually boating in, just coming in in a tinny. But yeah, like we've we've run out of fuel this week, so we haven't got any fuel. And obviously, you can't get fuel delivered. They can't get into the property. So we're we're trying to work out how how we can actually get fuel in. And got lots of different ideas. But uh, yeah, we haven't actually worked out what we're doing at this stage. But that <laughs> been been carting in twenty litre containers just for you know keep excavators and and vehicles and things going but you know we're going to start harvest probably a week week or so and you know we'll be chewing through a thousand litres a day so it's not really practical to bring over a thousand litres in 20 litre containers so it's probably down to finding some way of of actually filling you know a tank on on one side and they fill it up and drive out the gate and then we have to make our own arrangements about how we get it over okay so so you as the farmer you need to carry the risk well, it's sort of, you know, it's the way things are these days, you know. Before anyone does anything, they assess the risk and, and if they think it's unreasonable, then they just won't do it or they'll try and find a way of minimising the risk. But <laughs> we're at this point now where there aren't too many options about how we can actually, you know, get, get the fuel in. So, yeah, it's sort of extraordinary circumstances. That's that's the fuel side of things. That's just one one conundrum you've got, but... If you can get fuel in and you, you can get harvesting your winter crops, uh, you're also going to have a problem with what you do with that grain? Yeah, certainly. We've, we've got a little bit of on-farm storage, but most of it's actually got, got grain in it, stuff that we haven't sold, stuff that we've you know kept for the drought when it turns up, like silos full of oats and things. So, yeah, then we've got to work out how we... we I mean, we, we could just harvest it and dump it in, on a pile on the ground. It's actually safer in a pile on the ground than sitting on the stalk. Uh, you know, you could dig a hole and put it in the ground. Um, we've sort of looked at, you know, trying to get a bagger in, but uh, again, you'd have to you'd have to airlift that in. We thought we'd be able to get one in um, 
we had sort of one last access point that I went and checked on Sunday, but the flood water sort of had come up to that and um, cut that off. It's a long way, it's sort of 15 k's out sort of through two neighbouring properties, but yeah, the flood water, I wasn't expecting it to get up there, but it has and it's gone over the channel, so we've lost our last access point. Um, so yeah, maybe choppering a, a bagger in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, un- unusual sit- situation, un- un- unusual circumstances. You know, like the, the creek that we've lost access on, I thought it sort of came up high and I thought, oh, it'll be right, we won't, we won't lose that. But then we've had all this extra rain that's um, fallen out on the sort of Hay Plains, you know, between Moolamine and Hay out to Drilderie down to Canago, inches and inches of rain, like massive rain, and that's all feeding into the Billabong Creek, but also all these other creeks that just never run. You know, they're not actually really connected to the river system, but they, uh, yeah, it's just overland flow like a lot of that station country is all underwater so that's come down here and, and made this creek rise higher than i've ever seen it are water levels peaking at the moment they seem to have peaked and and maybe just backing off a little bit in some places but like we've got this like well like i said all that water that's coming in from the north and that's sort of still rising slightly at moolamine which is feeding into this creek that's cut us off so jeremy you've, you're trying to organise your winter crop harvest, but at the same time you've got your rice crop, you've managed to get some rice sown, but you've got this perverse sort of problem where it's actually short on water and you, you can't irrigate it because the channel's been cut to let flood water through? Yeah, that's right, Angus. Um, yeah, so the, the irrigation channel that supplies my um, my paddock, yeah, while it did have a pipe under it, it was obviously not sufficient to let the amount of water come through and it was just all backing up so they actually decided to to cut it and let the water through which is again that's extra water that's coming into this creek that's cut us off as well but yeah so the, but the, the flood water is actually lower than the, the water was in the channel and now I can't actually get any water onto my rice crop so um, Murray Irrigation who supply our water are trying to work out how they can actually get a pump in to pump the water into my paddock but yeah again it's, it's a risk thing that they're struggling with how they're going to get get the pump into me because you've got to get in through through all this water, so I don't know how we'll go with that. I'll have that conversation shortly with them, but you know, I think they're struggling to work out how they're actually going to get a pump to me. And you've got all this flood water around you, but you're not allowed to use it to, to irrigate your rice? Uh, no, no, you're not allowed to, to pump flood water in Lowell unless you've got a licence, but yeah, this is this paddock's, um, yeah, it's supplied out of a, a channel system, not, not, a, not a river pump, um, even though there's flood water basically right next to it. Yeah, I can't um, yeah, I can't use that water. That's Morlamine farmer Jeremy Morton speaking there to Angus Verley. On the country hour, it's 12 past 12. Well, uh, still on uh, flood damage, uh, grain growers are calling for federal funding to urgently fix the regional road network along freight access routes. In the lead-up to harvest, roads across western and central parts of the state, uh, as we know, have deteriorated under the pressure of repeated rain and flood events. The National Farmer-led body says that the waterlogging has exposed a chronically underfunded regional road network. Ian Gourlay is a director at Grain Growers, and he told Hannah Joes that the extra costs are piling up and farmers are the ones paying. Well, it's just been very restrictive. There's many roads that are unpassable, um, so you need to go a different route um, if there is a different route, um, which puts a lot of extra costs um, on, your, on your trip. The other issue is that in some cases there's no other route, so 
So then it's got to be all stored on farm if that's possible and then moved at a later date. And are farmers having trouble accessing their own paddocks and farms to be able to move the green? Yes, that, that's the other issue. It's, it's nearly all the roadworks that are causing the dramas at the moment. You've got the, the major highways, the local roads and also the on-farm movements as well are being very restrictive. But GreenCorp reports that there's no problem with getting access to their silos. Is that also what you're seeing? <laughs> I guess as in you can always get into the actual GreenCorp sites, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can get the road to the site. It might be a, a good use of words on their side. They might be suggesting that you can get into their sites, which you most likely can on the majority of their sites, but that doesn't mean that the road leading into their site is in an acceptable condition. It's certainly very difficult getting your grain off the farm and into the sites at the moment, not only in time delays, but at extra costs as well. So you've got the extra freight costs of moving it a longer distance. Plus, you've also got the extra maintenance costs on all the machinery. On a lot of our roads at the moment, like the trucks aren't going any more than 20 or 25 kilometres an hour because it's just destroying all the, all, the, all the actual trucks. Yeah, and what is the average speed that they normally would go at? Oh, they'd be sitting on 80 kilometres going down these gravel roads. Grain growers said that councils you know, shouldn't just be fixing potholes, they should be improving the long-term resilience of these networks. Um, how would that be done? What does grain growers suggest? Well, I think we need to be putting the money into the infrastructure to make it so it doesn't keep downgrading. I mean, there's no use just filling a hole all the time if, you know, it needs a cement culvert to fix the problem or, you know, if the road needs, you know, major structural work, put it on, it needs more gravel. There seems to be a, a really big issue in the whole funding system of road, local road maintenance at the moment. The councils don't seem to be able to do it if they are doing it. They're inefficient at doing it and probably um, and not getting what they should be out of the money that they're putting into it because of many reasons within their, that local government system. Um, and it, it all relies on a funding model which seems to be about 18 months to get money from a flood event into the actual road, which is then too late if you're having multiple flood events. And um, Green Growers also says the cost of ignoring this problem will be significant. So how significant are we talking? Well, just the, the, to get a truck to cart from a farm to a silo now has probably gone up maybe 30 35% in the last 18 months. So, yeah, it's a very high cost for growers all the way through. Uh, is this additional um, cost likely to be passed on to consumers? Well, unfortunately, at the moment, no, it's not, because growers at this stage are price takers, so not price makers. So that that value normally gets taken out on the, on the behalf of the grower. Mm-hmm. We're paying the extra cost. That, that has no reflection on that value going through the supply chain. That was Ian Gourlay, Director at Grain Growers, speaking with Hannah Joes about the urgency of fixing the regional road networks uh, while harvest is happening and uh, and beyond, and a bulk handler, Grain Corp, has been contacted for comment as well. 17 past 12. You're with Michael Condon for the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 
As more hives are destroyed in the Hunter due to fresh outbreaks of destructive varroa mite, the Australian Queen Bee Association is concerned about the impact nationally on the government's control programs. Over 17,000 hives have been destroyed now to stop the spread of varroa, and a major queen bee breeder has had to euthanise his bees under the uh, after that latest infestation was discovered. President of the association, Richard Sims, told David Crawton the varroa control measures are taking their toll on queen bee breeders. Yeah, it's been uh, incredibly, incredibly disruptive because. All the states have brought in health certificates and some of the states, their health certificates are just not workable. Um, if And uh, a lot of queen bee breeders have decided, especially Queensland beekeepers, uh, queen bee breeders, have decided just not to send bees in a state. It's just too hard. What kind um, of requirements if, do, do, do they have for those certificates? Um, well, the South Australian one was 10 pages long. Um, so if we're going to sit down and have to do that, um, we're going to have to um, pass pass that cost on in, in bees, which isn't fair. Uh, and it's also uh, we don't have somebody with a clipboard following us around um, recording all the information that, that was right. needed. So, so the movement I, of bees, is, of queen bees particularly, has been very restricted. Is that your assessment? It's incredibly restrictive. Uh, with yeah, I like. Um, I know a lot of people who aren't sending to South Australia or Victoria, Victoria because it's just too hard. And what impact is that having downstream? Do you think on apiarists and and the pollination services they provide, the honey they produce? Well, I know a lot of um, commercial um, honey producers are trying to set up their own queen bee breeding program, but it's incredibly hard because uh, queen bee breeding. Is is just a completely different ball game to honey production. Um, it's very hard to do uh, both. I've tried it, and uh, it's a it's doing doing two they're two completely separate jobs, and trying to fit them both in to your week uh, just in the end really doesn't work unless you can commit um, a certain amount of people to the queen bee your own queen bee breeding uh, program. And what's the total impact? What are the because we heard that there were six hundred hives uh, in that the, the the second to last case that needed to be eradicated because the increase in the red zone. There'll be another few hundred, I imagine, for this latest outbreak that Cole Wilson is caught up on. How many hives do you think have been uh, destroyed during this outbreak? Uh, totally. Uh... Over the whole whole um, time, it's been over seventeen thousand hives. But the problem is, these red zones keep popping up, and and how how long are we going to keep having red zones pop up and keep destroying bees? Because um, there could be another one tomorrow, so they create another red zone, and all those bees are destroyed. Is that a big uh, number? Seventeen thousand. It's a considerate um, number because a lot of those were um, um, commercial guys who who are now don't have an income. Um, a lot of them were um, amateur beekeepers who don't have their hobby anymore, who might have sold a bit of honey for cash. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a number not to be sneezed at. 
And Cole Wilson was saying he's he's just going to have to see what happens because you know obviously he's got to destroy his bees and then he's going to have to rebuild. But there are, I don't imagine that'll be very easy to try and restart your your queen bee operation. Well, Cole's been queen bee breeding for a long time, and um, I really don't know how he's going to do it. Like he, if he's in the red zone, well, he can't beekeep in there so he has to move out of that area so he's if his house and all his shed and that is in the red zone well he can't beekeep there for three years and in so terms it, of compensation he'll be compensated for his equipment but not for his bees so would the, the cost of getting new queen bees be significant if he were able to relocate um well it's his own breeding program that over years and years and years that he's perfected that is lost. Um, it's his his hard work and his time and effort that's gone into creating what he had. Yeah, a lot goes into it, and I don't think the New South Wales DPI understand queen bee breeding at all. I lost a lot of um, confidence in the New South Wales DPI when they had it set up that a bee double of bees could be moved across New South Wales, yet one queen bee could not be moved. I, I questioned Chris Anderson on this point, and uh, he said to me an entomologist had made that call, and nobody could understand in the queen bee re- in the queen bee breeding business how could they come to a decision like that. Richard Sims is the president of the Australian Queen Bee Association based in Bundaberg in Queensland. The ABC has contacted the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries for a response. It's 23 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Now, you might have seen this story on the ABC News side about the Game Council calling for Australians to eat what they call wild boar in an effort to control numbers of feral pigs. Darren Marshall is a Southern Queensland is with Southern Queensland Landscape, and he's a long-time pig shooter and trapper. And he says the move to encourage the consumption of feral animals in the US and elsewhere has only ever succeeded in increasing feral numbers, not decreasing them. He says uh, the result is that hunters will always leave animals behind to breed up for the next hunting season. It's really difficult because because it depends on what the community wants. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of landholders, they want to get rid of these animals. And if we start to harvest them, then then that means that the people that are doing the harvesting may not necessarily be inclined to take everything. You know what I mean? They might they might leave some of the sow, they might leave some of the little ones to breed up so they can get them for next time. So if you demonise an animal and make them make them the enemy and, you know, we want to get rid of all of them, then that's one thing. But then to harvest them and only selectively take some, that makes them a resource then and um, and people don't necessarily then want to eradicate them. Not everyone in Australia wants to get rid of feral pigs. There are a lot of hunters out there. There's hundreds and thousands of dollars spent, you know, every year um, on magazines, DVDs, and then look at all the hunting equipment, dogs, guns, quad bikes. You know, this is a 
a very high recreational activity in Australia. And, and if those fellas can get a little bit of money back through harvesting, then of course they're going to do that. And, you know, it only makes sense. It's, it's what you would do. But the question is, what does the community want? Does the community want to have a sustainable level of feral pigs? Or does the community want to get rid of feral pigs? And we've also heard warnings about the number of pigs we are seeing, and feral pigs we're seeing on properties around the place because of all the rain, because of all the grass, a good season, numbers exploding. I don't think there's any denying that the best way to get rid of pigs is have a good drought. Um, we've come out of a good drought, which is absolutely fantastic, and we've had some really, really good seasons. My prediction is the feral pig numbers will only increase over even the coming 12 months. You know, they've got... They've got all the cover, they've got all the food, water and shelter that they need. And, um, and you know, they're in, they're in breeding mode and, and rebuilding the population. Yourself, you would have seen a number of feral pigs. You would have seen the condition they're in, the ticks, the worms. Would you have them on your menu? Uh, no, I probably wouldn't eat them because I work with them all the time. But, but you know, I mean, people overseas, it, it's a delicacy. You know, people do really, really look for it. So, that you know, wild boar is a delicacy, but I'm, I'm not sure I'd have it on my plate. Mm, and well, and not only the disease risk as well, but just the whole sort of idea of it for many people would be quite horrific. Some landholders would be absolutely devastated to, to hear that, you know, these animals could be harvested and there's a sustainable population um, left on their properties. My background is let's get rid of them. Let's wipe them out. Let's, um, let's save the agricultural, the agricultural resources that they're having so much impact on and the environmental resources and also the disease spread, let's get rid of these animals. But, but, by, but by harvesting them, we're certainly not going to do that. Yeah, and you mentioned the United States, they put a bounty on it, and that it didn't, rather than decrease the numbers, actually increase the numbers of uh, feral animals in the States. Yeah, they did a big study in Tennessee, and I, I think we see it locally as well. I mean, wherever you put a bounty on an animal, it, it actually increases the population. It doesn't decrease it because because it makes them a sought-after animal in the landscape. So therefore, people don't want to get rid of all of them. They, they want to keep a few, keep some for next time, and collect that bounty. And harvesters will do exactly that. They will harvest the animal rather than absolutely annihilating all of them. Darren Marshall is based in southern Queensland. He's a long-time trapper of uh, pigs. It's uh, coming up to 27 minutes past 12. Uh, got a few texts on that though. Someone's texted in saying, I had wild boar a few times in France and it was really tasty. So uh, they're saying, open up your minds and taste buds and there might be a new business opportunity. And Joe in the Hunter Valley says, uh, I would sh- surely eat wild boar. Had the best wild boar curry in Penang in Malaysia. And a German chef friend has always raved about imported Aussie wild boar and that was in the late 1980s. But uh, another text from, even from Jeff in Lismore says, DNA herd testing is showing that people, most likely hunters, are moving wild pigs along uh, long distances to areas previously free of feral pigs. Hunters, uh, as we heard in the story there, hunters would see no benefit in lowering pig numbers, especially if they can use them for income. Uh, and if uh, foot and mouth disease makes it back to Australia, wild pigs, of course, would spread it uncontrollably. So uh, some mixed views about the idea there. But, uh, well, I don't know about you, but the idea of eating wild boar does sound a whole lot different to the idea of eating feral pig. And it uh, may well be uh, that you're talking about a gastronomic experience there. So uh, what are the health implications, though, 
of eating wild pigs. Charles Sturt University's professor in veterinary parasitology, Shukufi Shamsi, says that uh, there are a lot of unknowns when you start eating feral animals. From my perspective, we definitely need more uh, information. We need to do more research, especially when we're offering and suggesting uh, consuming the feral pig. That warrants proper information about diseases they can transfer to humans, you know, from food safety aspects of it. And I don't think the information is there. If you, I mean, not only about the feral pig, about a lot of other um, uh, wildlife and animals that live inland Australia. We almost know nothing about their diseases and their parasites, especially uh, the potential for transferring diseases, especially if you're talking about feral animals that mm. haven't grown up in farm conditions. We almost know nothing about them and they are out of our control about what they have or what they don't. It's interesting because I've been asking the question this morning and a lot of listeners have texted in saying pigs, feral pigs, carry a great big worm load and that they, some people have said they'd be very reluctant to eat pigs that have just been caught or captured and others have said that they have, you know, domesticated wild pigs and and um, slaughtered them after that, which I will add is actually illegal. You're not allowed to do it because they are a feral mm. species. Uh, yeah, they not only worms, but also they could have some other parasites and some other diseases in them mm. uh, because they are not native Australian species, as we, everyone knows. They just brought into Australia. So not only they potentially have parasites that they brought from overseas, like some tapeworms, like some roundworms that, you know, can go, it will call trichinella, which is really a painful condition for human and other stuff. Uh, they also can have uh, some parasites that, uh, you know, like they pick up from Australia after they came here. Mm. They are, they've been here for a very long time. It's quite possible that they picked up some native parasites in Australia that, again, they also could be uh, problematic for humans. But native parasites in Australia usually don't find their way to humans. Native parasites. There's something else to think about there. That was uh, Professor Shukufi Shamsi speaking there to Sally Bryant. 29 minutes to one here on the country. And uh, quite a few more texts coming in on the issue of wild boar as well. So you can uh, keep your your thoughts rolling in. 0467 Opinions divided about whether or not we should be eating feral pig. 0467922684 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. And uh, Adam Stories, join me now. Good afternoon. Weren't you meant to cross to the cricket? Is that cricket? No, today? not. It, it was yesterday. They started it early, ah. half an hour early. and um, But now the actual match doesn't start till one o'clock. So. Oh, I thought we were. Had so another they're, they're stuck free with for, us again, I'm I afraid. I thought we had a free for all digital. Have, they on should have been again. listening on, list, on <clears> the uh, ABC Listen app yesterday for uh, our hilarious exchange oh, that they I tell missed. You. Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. took up the full half hour of the last half hour. Chatting show. away, <laughs> feral pigs, you name it. Are you telling me the ham I eat isn't feral? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, you eat. That was, that's, that's a whole other story. Yep. Mm. Um, okay, let's get to the news. Um, <clears throat> the federal government is delivering its climate statement in federal parliament. It says it's on track to achieve a 40% emissions reduction target by 2030, which falls short of its promised target of 43%. Uh, its projection report released today is part of the annual climate change statement and it outlines the government's approach to managing climate change. 
Uh, he says uh, the government has lifted the outlook on emissions reduction by a third in the last six months and expects to lift the result by 2030. Uh, there's been a compensation payout uh, for a man who was uh, deemed a suspect in the William Tyrrell investigation. Bill Spedding uh, has successfully sued police for malicious prosecution after he was cleared of historic child sex allegations and he's received $1.5 million in compensation. Uh, latest property data shows the price of houses across the country is continuing to fall, but at a slower rate. Uh, CoreLogic says home values across the country fell by around 1% last month. Now, of course, uh, today we are all soccer fans, um, <laughs> given that uh, we have uh, beaten Denmark. Uh, yes, 1-0. 1-0. Good goal, too. Yeah. Lecky's goal. In the 60th. Uh, so we now play Argentina, I know. who I think actually suffered a shock loss they in did. a tournament uh, just before the World Cup. Well, they lost. Yeah. They lost in the in the in their first match. They it was the first match. One, was it one nil? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Bit they're, of a surprise there. They're there for the taking. Mm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, although I haven't didn't didn't watch the <clears throat> the match with uh, with uh, Argentina, but uh, oh, actually, I saw a couple of the highlights, but. Um, they're playing a lot better now yes. than they were in the first match. First and match. Messi was all over the place in the in the goal square. I think he got about ten touches in the goal, squ- in the goal <laughs> square in the match. So he's obviously yeah. back on form. I would say. So we better watch out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Got his incre- incredible foot speed for a little guy. He's so quick. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, in- you know, it's just incredible to watch. Just like you were when you were young and yeah. Oh, I yeah. wish, I yeah. wish. Uh, in uh, entertainment news, some sad news. Uh, the Fleetwood Mac singer uh, Christine McVeigh has uh, passed away, and uh, fellow singer Stevie Nicks has paid tribute to her. Uh, she's died at the age of seventy-nine. And Britain's Royal Mint is going to issue a new collectible coin uh, to celebrate the Rolling Stones' sixtieth anniversary. Mm. Uh, it's a new, well, it's a five-pound coin. <laughs> a five-pound coin. Yeah, there featuring a. Uh, silhouette image of the band performing as well as their name in what's described as a classic 1973 font. Oh, okay. So, hmm. Just trying to... Something like Sticky Fingers. Yeah, something like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> something early 70s. Sounds interesting. Well, yeah. the, the, a favourite of the Royals. The, uh, oh, the absolutely. Stones. Yeah, mm. A favourite so. of everyone. Yeah. Mm. Better than the Beatles. What do you reckon? Yeah, I'm a Stones man. <laughs> There you go. It's like Holden and Ford and Ford. <laughs> well, we know where, you, yeah, we know yeah, where you're coming you from. There you I've got it out there. Yeah, it's out yeah, there. Yeah. Oh, the techs are going to roll oh, in now, I'm mate. Watch, watch out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Talk to you later. It's uh, coming up to 25 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. Gabriel Woodhouse at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you? Very well. So uh, we weren't supposed to get a little bit of rain, but someone texted in saying they didn't think they'd get any rain. They got 20 millimetres at Canamble. So some storms around. Yeah, there were a few storms around. And also um, out near Gilgandry picked up 32 millimetres of rain um, yesterday. Um, today, though, at, at the moment, we're seeing a few storms out between about Ningen to, to Burke, that little area of the world. And uh, as we move further into the afternoon and evening, we are looking at a few more storms um, stretching anywhere from the Queensland border right through um, towards uh, the Riverina and even the southwest slopes today. So whilst uh, those storms are going to be quite isolated, um, you can potentially... Can still get them. 
mm. can still get them and as you know you can pick up a, a decent drop underneath some of these uh, storms even though the rainfall totals themselves aren't uh, anything too much. Um, across the northeast of the state though we are still seeing some fairly persistent rain uh, along the northern parts of the coast and the ranges there and that's uh, going to persist into tomorrow but start to, to weaken off as we see that uh, chough off the Queensland coast uh, start to move away a little bit. Right, okay, so then fining up there as well. And Will most of the state be fine for a while, for a few days? Look, in terms of the, the forecast over the next few days, uh, looking at uh, the risk of a few thunderstorms in the very far west of the state tomorrow, so looking at areas west of about Ivanhoe or Burke tomorrow, um, along the coastal parts, um, we are still going to be looking at a few showers persisting, um, and along the northern coast, they'll be persisting for the next couple of days. Um, with that, we will be seeing a bit of a warming trend um, across the weekend and into the early part of next week, and that's just ahead of another change that's going to bring some cooler conditions during the first half of next week and may see a return to a couple of thunderstorms uh, across the south and then the eastern parts come Monday, Tuesday. So um, for the bulk of the inland, uh, we are just looking at uh, just a couple of showers and storms around today, um, and that threat really weakens off over the next day or two with uh, you know fairly warm and dry um, uh, skies, uh, particularly on Sunday and Monday. Right, okay. And warming up at all, or what, what's the temperature look like? Yeah, so the temperatures are going to be warming up a little bit. Um, so at the moment, it seems as though ahead of that change on the weekend is when it's going to be you know, the, the warmest, um, and the, uh, on Monday ahead of that change moving through as well, that is. So on Sunday, maximum temperatures um, across the inland generally at high 20s to, to low 30s. So looking about 34 degrees at Ivanhoe on Sunday, about 29 degrees up at uh, Moree and you know, 31 or 32 uh, at Wagga. On Monday, though, um, that warms up just a little bit. Um, so looking at uh, you know, mid-30s across much of the southern and western parts of the inland and low 30s up around the uh, northwest slope. So uh, quite warm ahead of that change coming through where we'll see temperatures drop around 5 to 8 degrees um, by Tuesday and uh, Wednesday. So that, that system coming through but not bringing a lot of rain? No, at the moment it looks as though it's going to bring the threat of a couple of thunderstorms to the far southeast on Monday um, and then that threat starts to spread a little bit further north along the coastal um, districts and along the ranges during Tuesday. But uh, rainfall totals at this stage um, don't look to be particularly high at this point, um, but we are still looking at generally a showery um, sort of week ahead for, for much of the coastal parts of New South Wales and much drier conditions inland, although, as we say, with those storms, um, you can be quite unlucky if you're just underneath one of them. Yes, indeed, uh, and uh, the, the person at Canamble there not, wasn't uh, particularly pleased about getting 20 millimetres, but uh, you're getting those storms, they can, they can get you. Thanks for that, uh, Gabrielle. My pleasure. Gabriel Woodhouse at the Bureau there. It's 21 minutes to one here on the country. Uh, got a few texts coming in on the uh, wild boar issue and uh, someone's, John's texted in saying, uh, I eat wild pigs and have done for years. I've had no problems with diseases or worms. They can be very strong in taste, but when you grow up eating them, it's pretty easy on the palate. Uh, but uh, Troy, the harvesters, texted in to say uh, back in the day, when we shot foxes for money, it actually got hard to find any foxes. So it was Troy's opinion that hunting pressure actually would reduce numbers of things like feral pigs. And uh, there's a few more texts coming through on the on the text line zero four six seven nine double two six eight four, and a few texts uh, coming through about uh, the uh, road issue as well. Might get to them shortly on the program. 
But right now, salt marshes and mangroves all across Australia have uh, historically been undervalued. They're often viewed as wastelands with little economic value. But there's a renewed push to protect these threatened ecosystems as they're able to sequester carbon faster than tropical rainforests. Local land services in New South Wales is working with farmers to fence off salt marshes on private land. Dairy farmer Paul Anderson milks 240 cows at Pyrie in the uh, southeast of New South Wales and he told Josh Becker that he enjoys having a mix of wetlands and productive pastures on his farm. Oh, this place here is about 200 acres. It's probably about 80 acres of it is salt marsh. So it's pretty, um, it's low country. You can't, can't make any feed or sides of it. So it's just... People are holding ground for cows. What do you think of the the salt marsh on on your property, and what, is it valuable to you on the on the farm in that way? Or? They can't grow you can't grow any pastures. I mean, if they can't grow fireweed, well, you can't grow nothing. So really, it's, it's pretty dead land. Mm. So it's if we can uh, beautify it a bit more, or whatever. It's because we, we do have a bit of a wetland area on, on here as well, and it's. So there's a few little birds there and water there all the time, so it's, it's, it's um, not too bad. Sonia Bazako is a senior local land services officer and is working alongside farmers to fence off and protect valuable salt marsh landscapes. Yeah, so what's really great about this project is on Anderson's is that we're fencing off 17 hectares of what I would say is largely, say, 80% coastal salt marsh and around uh, 10 to 20% of mangroves and swamp oak forest. So that's really great. That's a really large, significant area that Andersons are putting aside towards having an environmental gain. And I've been approaching a lot of farmers in the Pyree area because there are actually there's actually 220 hectares of salt marsh uh, in the Shoalhaven, and that's the la- largest area of salt marsh that there is in the whole of the southeast. Uh, how significant of, as an ecosystem is the salt marsh? Well, a lot of people don't even realise really what salt marsh is, um, and it, it is that um, intertidal community that's that's on the landward side of mangroves. Uh, so trees aren't able to grow in that area, and it's usually full of grasses, reeds, um, succulents, um, and rushes. Salt marsh is really important for lots of different reasons. Um, one reason a lot of people don't realise is that coastal salt marsh is able to absorb eight times as much carbon and 35 times the rate than a land-based forest. Um, so yeah it's very important for doing that not only that it's very important in improving water quality so what it does is it actually acts as a buffer between the terrestrial and aquatic environment so sediment and off-farm runoff uh, such as nitrogen and contaminants is actually filtered through the salt marsh and absorbed and recycled by the salt marsh and it's actually really good at holding the edge of our estuaries down our waterways down so as we're seeing a more extreme advance and more wave energy destroying our coastlines salt marsh is really good at kind of anchoring it down and uh, reducing the effects of that happening. Another reason why coastal salt marsh is also very important is its value as a habitat. So uh, studies have been done that shown that over 40 different fish species utilise salt marsh for habitat, a lot of those being commercial species. species. Um, and some of those uh, also use that area as a nursery for younger fish. And there's a huge amount of other species also use coastal salt marsh, uh, such as migratory species, species uh, such as the sandpipers and mammals and raptors and, yeah, many different species. How would you rate the quality of the salt marshes in the southeast New South Wales? 
Uh, it does very, very, very much between the region. I tend to think the further south you go, the, uh, the salt marsh is in very good condition further south. Um, in general, I would say it's in good condition. What role can farmers have in, in protecting these salt marshes? Yeah, so it's really important to be able to, the first step really is to exclude stock off these very sensitive areas because what happens is uh, the salt marsh plants get eaten and they get trodden on and pugging occurs and that's where the hooves uh, dig holes into the salt marsh. And salt marsh is really sensitive in that it requires a certain elevation to actually regenerate. So if all of the topsoil is lost in salt marsh, it takes a, it, it won't regenerate and it'll stay completely bare. So it won't be able to perform all those fantastic functions I was talking about before. Is there a downside in uh, fencing off this area that has once been used for grazing that people lose a part of their farm or are you hearing feedback from farmers that they're happy to go down that path? Uh, I often cold call landholders and I uh, target landholders that have large areas of coastal salt marsh and most landholders that I talk to are very keen actually to be part of our project and because this vegetation community is so important uh, we have really good incentive programs particularly around coastal salt marsh to protect these areas and um, often they aren't worth very much economically anyway they have very low grazing capacity there aren't thick dense plants in there Kaikuyu grass can't grow in that area so it's not much of a loss for those landholders. And so there's money available to essentially build those fences and, and, and help keep stock out of those salt marshes? Yes, so we do have funding at local land services. Uh, the funding I'm working on now is the National Land Care Program, but we have funding to continue to exclude stock from these areas uh, and remove weeds just to improve the habitat value of these. Uh, so if you're interested, contact your local land service office. Dairy farmer Paul Anderson says he's happy to fence off the salt marsh on his property to protect the environment. Oh, yeah, I mean can't use it for anything anyway so if, if you're just um, trying to save it and um, at the end of the day the farmer is I think is, is it is it best in uh, environmentalists because we, we walk the ground and, um, and we know what, what they can and can't do. Dairy farmer Paul Anderson ending that report from Josh Becker. 14 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Uh, getting more texts on the uh, pig issue, feral pigs, uh, and um, someone's uh, texted in from the Jura Valley to say, if you see the damage pigs do, you want to kill them on site along the creeks and rivers. They uproot the trees and they're digging for grubs. Uh, the pastures are eroded by the pigs and uh, uh, they're saying that they should be completely eradicated. It's uh, 14 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, as we heard yesterday, new regulations are affecting uh, agritourism activities and they come into force today. Steve Tills runs an apple orchard in the Hunter Valley, the only one left in the region, and tourism has become the bedrock of his business in recent years. David Clawton spoke to him about how things are going, starting with the apple season. It's been wet for us, uh, but been quite successful. We've had a, a really good um, pollination and we've had a great apple crop set. The apples are looking really good at the moment. And business in the tourism side? Business in the tourism side is uh, pretty strong. You know, ever since COVID um, and once that we got through those first initial stages, people were travelling, um, you know, locally, internally. Um, so that had benefited us greatly. Um, also, you know, we, we got into the wedding market a bit and we, and, and we allow people to come and, you know, do what they want to do on our property um, and 
So you can get married amongst the apple blossoms. You you get married amongst the apple blossoms. That's correct. We call it, you know, the October is wedding month uh, for us. Because we've only got a very small property, um, we have to offset, you know, any income um, with the apples, with uh, with the tourism, which which makes the property viable and, and long term. You know, we we basically share our property with the public, mm. um, and that's what makes it good. People don't have to go and buy their own property; they can come and you know enjoy our place. And so, have you been able to recover from some difficult years during the pandemic and and some dry years too? Oh, look, we have. Yeah, we had a couple of years where the apples just didn't produce. That was two years ago. We just didn't have a didn't have a crop. The whole place shut down, and and that was when the COVID started. Um, basically, we just told all our guests not don't even come because of number one, we were were in the midst of the drought. We had no water in the Omidale Brook for twelve weeks, and it was just. I said to all of our guests, just go to the beach for the, this summer, <laughs> and then the next minute, COVID hit, and that put a damper on the whole industry but look you know gave us a bit of time to recover and do some repairs and maintenance that we had to have done so you know in some so ways you come through okay oh look we've come through you know quite well and the people who keep coming back we've had a bit of a, a change of the people who are coming we've got some a lot of new clients coming in and once once people book for a year they, they'll come back with their friends in it in you know 12 months time and they'll make it an annual event and are you seeing a bit uh, of a – have you got a facility there for RVs, you know, for, for vans and stuff to stay? Look, we do. We have a, a nice campground. But, we look, that's one of those things we don't, you know, heavily push. Um, we could push it a lot harder. So we try and make it a bit exclusive. And, you know, we've only got sort of 10 sites uh, throughout the whole property. So we really don't want too many – we don't want too many people there and spoil it for everyone else. And you've got roadside store? Look, we don't actually have a roadside store, but we will um, after um, December or, or next season. We will have a roadside store because we have uh, we've got a caretaker coming in there to live on site, and also uh, we have cider and wine on the property as well, just a small amount. But the cider is quite a big going concern, and we will start to do the you know more wine tasting on-site weekends, things like that. So you're making your own cider? Make our own cider, yep. We have an apple truck cider, which is, uh, you know, distributed heavily through the, the Hunter Valley. Um, and uh, it's great to have a Hunter product, which is we're basically the only Hunter cider around. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a that's an exclusive market, given that there are any other orchards around. Well, that's right. <laughs> and so, what about those changes to regulations that affected the sort of the tourism side for, for agricultural <sighs> ventures? Did that make a difference to you? Look, I haven't got right into it, deeply into it. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that you know it'll it'll have some effect w- with us, uh, but really, life just goes on for us. Stephen Tills, who grows Red Delicious, and Jonathan Apples, and hosts weddings at the Orchard and guests in the Roma Lodge. One council in the state's north has passed a motion to opt out of the regulations, saying they don't have the resources to handle compliance, but the state government is saying that that's not an option and all councils will need to be involved in the new, in the new planning processes. 
It's nine to one on the country hour. Well, a corporate vineyard in southwest New South Wales has just installed some new precision irrigation equipment. The Athena IR technology, which is developed using Wine Australia backing, uses sensors to constantly measure plant and environmental temperature, humidity and solar radiation. Duxton Vineyard's environmental manager Dylan Klingbeal says that he's expecting to see yield benefits, improvements in grape quality and water efficiency gains as a result of using this equipment. So it's a permanent fixture that sits above the canopy uh, with two cameras or sensors off the bottom of it. Um, It's measuring all sorts of data constantly, sending out signals every 15 minutes and uh, we can read that back at our computer. And essentially what it's doing is it's giving us a measure of how stressed the vine is um, and translates it back to a water index. So it's looking at the way the pores or the stomata and the leaf are behaving and uh, it it puts that into an algorithm that then can give you an indication of when you need a water, how much water, just to keep it in an optimal range. How does this technology compare to other water guidance systems that other vineyards might be using? So this one takes a unique angle which really excited us which is it focuses on the plant and the leaves and how the plant's behaving rather than a lot of traditional sensors are soil based looking at the moisture in the soil and uh, it's just a different angle it's really trying to understand the plant um, and then from a cost point of view it's very much competitive so for us it was it was really a no-brainer to get it out in the field and try it. This technology was used last year in South Australia what kind of impact were the vineyards that were using this system noticing? The guys in South Australia have seen some really good, but not only yield benefits, but water savings, and then a, an increase in some of your key wine quality parameters, like your anthocyanins and tannins. So we thought that was quite exciting, that you can potentially save water and increase the quality of your grape output as well. So we feel in a region like ours in uh, Murray Darling or even other areas like your Riverland and Griffith is where the, the true value is because we're such large water users. You can tell when a vine is starting to become stressed. It often shows up in the leaves. By using this infrared technology are you able to get those indications sooner than you would just by using the naked eye? The key features of the technology is that there there is a early early sensing or early um, capturing of stress so before you'd visually see your vine leaves wilting say on a 40 degree day the sensor will pick that up and there's talks of it being seven days prior to actually seeing that vine stress so that's another exciting feature that we can tackle early we can up our irrigation volumes to keep the vine in that optimal range. How many of these sensors has Duxton installed? Currently we've got 14 purchased uh, and installed across our portfolio so the vineyard we're standing in at the moment we've got two over 130 hectares so we we see it as an indicator it's similar to a moisture probe you're not going to cover every area of your vineyard with probes otherwise you're going to need to purchase hundreds of them so they are an indication and trying to get a generalist picture of the entire vineyard so you do need to still get out look and see in the field but we feel like it's a it's a really good tool to have in your back pocket just to make decisions on irrigation my name is jay holada and i'm the ceo of athena ir tech We currently have 41 wine grape growers in Australia and New Zealand that are using the technology. For the most part, they have historically been South Australia-based, but since uh, June this past year, this current season, we now have expanded to include wine grape growers in WA, 
New South Wales, the ACT, and Victoria, in, in addition to South Australia. And we also have a winery in New Zealand that's using it. Does what you've developed so far suit all grape varieties? The solution works on any irrigated crop. Um, but the initial research was done on wine grapes, and we are currently supporting Cabernet, Sauvignon, and Shiraz grapes. The technology actually has two components. A hardware component that sits above the vines and records canopy temperature, ambient temperature, humidity, solar radiation. And then there is a software component. There's a proprietary algorithm that runs behind the scenes in the cloud that takes that data that's recorded throughout the day and provides what's called a, a vine water index for wine grapes. That basically is the relationship of the amount of available water to the grapevine. Jay Halada from Athena IR Tech. To Wagga Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. There were 32,000 lambs and 15,000 sheep at Wagga and a very mixed yarding of lambs with a lot of store lambs pushed onto the market again this week. Prices were 15 to 20 dollars cheaper across the board. Heavy lambs topped at 252. They ranged from 215 to 250. Trade lambs sold anywhere from 160 to 205, averaging around 720 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Store lambs were back 15 to 20 dollars, ranging in price from 40 dollars to 85 dollars. And light secondary lambs were back 20 dollars to the processors. Sheep are at the moment being sold. They are selling $20 cheaper, averaging around 300 cents a kilogram carcass weight. I'm Leanne Dunks for MLA. To Dubbo Cattle. Good afternoon. Dubbo pen 4,344 mixed quality cattle in the market. Short on cow numbers with a good selection of heavy steers to process. Included through the penning was an offering of adjustment heifers, low in weight but strong in condition. These going into the feed pens. Most regular buyers attended with a major commission feeder buyer absent. Yearling steers varied from well-bred types to plainly conditioned pens, resulting in a mixed market. Plainer light steers to feed to 3.48 cents a kilo, selling to cheaper trends. The better bred cattle to 5.28 to see a slightly dearer trend. Similarly, medium steers with quality sold firm to dearer trends to 4.48, which included some uh, very heavy two-tooth steers, plainer types to 3.70. Heifers to a similar trend, the better types to feed, 428 to 440. The off types, 262 to 292 and cheaper. Uh, light restockers to 494. Processor heifers to 450. Heavy ground steers sold a cheaper trend, 322 to 370. And heifers, 285 to 354. Limited cow numbers saw a firm trend, medium weights, 282 to 303. And heavy cows, 305 to 326. Stephen Adams, MLA at Dubbo. To Yas Cattle, Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Numbers eased to 359 and the quality was plainer. Yearlings were best supplied and most returned to the paddock or went on to feed. Processors were very selective in their purchases. Growing cattle were in reasonable numbers and only 31 cows were penned. The market sold to a softening trend. Weaner steers 561 to 607, the heifers 500 to 520. Medium weight feeder steers back 20 cents, 380 to 510, the heavyweights lost 15, 420 to 450. Feeder heifers ranged between 320 and 382, the prime heifers to the trade reached 440. A plainer run of grown steers and bullocks sold between 310 and 340, with only two tooths going on to feed, reaching 380. 
Heavy grown heifers were firm, 320 to 340. Cows fell 10 cents. Most were heavy four score cows, and they sold from 278 to 310. And this has been Graham Richard. You've been listening to the Country Hour. We're heading up to news time.